welcome to our new podcast series, Lessons in Hope. I'm Roxy Khan-Williams and in this podcast myself and Nick Spooner will be in conversation with the Hope Not Hate Director of Education, Owen Jones, exploring a child's eye view on far-right ideology from an anti-fascist educator, campaigning against those ideas in the classroom up and down the country. Each episode in this series will be themed around a lesson you'd find in most schools and this week to kick us off we're looking at the theme of geography and how that impacts Owen's work and the spread of far-right ideology. Nick, Owen, lovely to be joined by both of you. How are you both doing? Likewise, yeah, I'm tremendously well. Owen, how about yourself? Yeah, I'm really good, thanks. Yeah, it's a half term, enjoying the rest. Fantastic. You, Roxy? You're... Yeah, yeah, I'm really good, enjoying the sunshine. Owen, uh, I met you, how many years ago now is it? Maybe six and a half years, something like that. You were running a community organising training camp in Thurrock in Essex, 2014. Uh, yeah, it's quite a few years ago now. It made me feel very odd. Uh <laughs> And at the end of it, it was myself and a few others who were who were given jobs. You became my line manager. You then spent the next eleven months traveling all around the country, up and down the country, visiting visiting all of our projects, our community organising projects in Cardiff, up in Dudley, Southampton. Um, and I think the focus of these projects really was that they were they were in quite divided communities for the most part. And I guess this is kind of this was kind of the genesis of some of the educational work. We are at the foremost inspired by the community organising work we did, but back back then. And it's taking what lessons could we learn from the community where we tried to, yeah, as you said, take divided communities, but find something that unites them, find them a, a way around to, to to make them more uh, calm, to make them more pleasant places to live, and put that into the, those learnings into the classroom, uh, so that students can have a more pleasant, relaxed, and free environment to live in i want to say that i think you're uh you're a, you're a legend you're a hero really i mean I, I stepped in to do a session for you one day um and for a, there was a there was a, f- a few weeks in my life where i thought i was going to be a teacher and having run this session i decided i didn't want to be a teacher anymore so i i, I absolutely commend you i think you're a, i think what you're doing is is absolutely fantastic what does it look like you know running the educational department it's actually quite a hard job but i think in ways that people don't really understand and i know that when you came to join us you walk in that class but you've got you've got this this duality of, of like your presence you have to you have to maintain so it's one case you have to be this warm friendly approachable character very quickly so that you can talk about very delicate and sensitive subjects in the class in the way that the students feel comfortable talking to you maybe some very controversial views they have so you can discuss these things and they can learn from it but at the same time you've also got to maintain a class for the next hour of 30 teenagers well i mean you know we all think you're doing a fantastic job you and your team i think it's going to be a really interesting discussion going into geography and how that you know in many ways impacts the work that you do you know, as anti-fascists we need to have a kind of local context in mind but the sort of impact of technology in terms of flattening that geographic difference the sense that somebody can put something on the internet in the US and it can be listened to or watched by a young person in, you know, in Sunderland or wherever it is, London. Is that something that you see? I assumed we'd see a flattening out of ideologies and the people would have very, very much aligned um, with homogenous views because geography didn't matter anymore. However, what we're seeing actually is that's not particularly the case. We are seeing where students are cut off physically cut off for the country maybe that through trans- transport links they find it hard to get around they're not used to cosmopolitan uh, cities like london or birmingham or manchester and a lot of these ideas 
are still coming out of these style environments and the students find that sort of uh, very um, alien to them. Uh, they're not used to that environment or that way, that way of thinking so that they're not sort of relating so much uh, to that material. It's what, what we're witnessing really in the, in the classroom. So you're still getting that very much localised uh, context that, that relates to their local towns or their local village. So the ideas are there, but then they interact with things at a local level. Yeah, I'd say, I'd say but I think even with this extreme material, I think most of it, if you bother watching it, uh, it's, it still has some sort of city-centric focus. You know, normally the backdrop is a very hustly bustly city. The reference points can uh, point to, you know, obviously they've got to reference places that most people have heard of, which are normally our cities and big towns. So if the idea of these videos and to come out of that environment can sometimes, for some people, it's motivating. You know, they, they, they like that, they find it exciting. Others, they find it intimidating and, and off-putting. And we're seeing actually a lot of the latter uh, with the students in the, in the classrooms that we teach in. So you're talking about, you know, the difference between like a rural and a more metropolitan area and, and the schools that reside within them. How, how do you select the places that you want to go and work in or, you know, do you get schools approaching you? How does that uh, dynamic kind of play out in, in your work? Um, well, schools certainly do approach us all the time. We never turn a school down. Uh, we ha we're very lucky to be able to provide our stuff free of charge to any school that what need, needs or wants us. Um, however, we do, we do do target some schools. We do approach them offering our services. Um, and we're quite lucky here at Hope Not Hate that unlike many of the charities working in the sector, we've got people like yourselves doing the campaigning work. I've also got colleagues um, doing, doing the research department and also our, our policy guys. What I try and do is I try and take the, the learnings from the research team and what's the local, most the, the newest trends are, what the big themes are in terms of extremism, and also more importantly, the terms of the policy work, especially with our, our towns project. To try and take out what's going on in their polling, what's their, what are their findings, what's their research saying and their analysis, and then trying to fit how best can I use the resources I've got to try and target those areas that the two other departments are saying this is where the need is greatest. How do you see technology kind of giving a voice to people that are physically outside those uh, big cities, the sort of centres of power that you, that, you, that you mentioned earlier, including, I suppose, far-right voices as well? How do you see that playing out? Um, yeah, someone living in a very remote part, so if, say, like, you know, an Cumbria can, uh, has the ability to spread it if they, know, if they know how to do it. Is there an example you've encountered of a student who's been shaped completely by internet influencers? What we find interesting in the classroom when it comes to the, the, these characters that have uh, sort of a completely adopted an ideology that's sort of counter to the rest of the classroom is that they just... They come out with the exact same phrases or exact same arguments, almost word for word. We're especially seeing this amongst the uh, sort of the rise in, or say rise in misogyny, the rise in open misogyny within the classroom. Is that I could go to any part of the country, and when you meet these these uh, normally it's young boys, they come out with these statements. It's often word for word the same, which leads me to believe that they are engaging exactly the same context, uh, same same content, uh, regardless where they are in the country and, and consuming that stuff and regurgitating it. Also, what's quite interesting is when you actually challenge that stuff, is they very rarely have anything to back it up. They haven't really haven't got a solid understanding of the material. They're often talking about concepts that probably are, um, a bit too nuanced for them in terms of the, the area that they've decided to argue within. And that's when things fall down because all they've got really is this one video they've watched that they want to spew out into the classroom because it happens to fit their narrative. Though. Whereas with other students bringing different sources, whereas the, the kids who into the, go into the, that area of extremism they have very very sort of one-liners and they change their voice as well you can see you can see it they change their voice they become a different person because they're just spewing out stuff that's not their words what's the kind of way into some of this ideology 
for some of these young people. The, the softer end of extremism, I guess you could say, is, is available on YouTube and things. Some of the conspiracy theories around. So you could be, you know, you could have a child researching innocently um, their homework on the Holocaust and come across Holocaust denial videos, you know, five, ten years ago that would never have happened. But I think it really does depend on geography and depends on your, on your surroundings. You find that issues seem to change from place to place depending on the uh, culture and the, the demographic makeup of, of that area. So for instance, you might find in one area where there's a very, very low level of, um, of Muslim residents or maybe none at all, that we find a lot of students because they've never met them, they're very cut off from cities, they're petrified of Muslims, absolutely terrified of them. It's really interesting, you know, what you were saying about Muslims and a lot of kind of my work when lockdown first started was kind of looking at how um, British Muslims were being positioned as this bogeyman, as the super spreaders of the virus. And, you know, we, we saw similar narratives come out against Jewish communities as well. And how do you think lockdowns affected your work? And how do you think lockdowns affected the spread of hate to, to students and children? But what's interesting for our work, it's actually not being talked about at all on a sort of a national level. A degrading of most students to most development. Now, in the areas we work in, I, look, I showed, I got shown some data on it from a, a school in rural North Essex. In these sort of uh, rural coastal towns, they're they're seeing on average um, that students are 22 months behind where they'd normally be. So not only they has lockdown hindered their their um, emotional development, but also then it's, it's made things worse because they're not being interacting with other human beings. They're not being having that that growing up that we would normally expect of us to go through when we go through our early early teens, sort of key stage three at time. But they've 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 gone far worse. Now in the areas we work in, if you look at that data, it's even worse. It can get down as far as a 26 month um, behind where they, they should be, which for our work is massive because we are in essence talking about empathy. We're trying to get people to empathise with other people in different situations and get them to understand that actually some people in life have harder struggles and have suffered prejudice and suspicion that other other majority groups haven't got to deal with. And we need to re we need to talk about the nuances within that and, and then get people to reflect their behaviour accordingly, which in turn will hopefully get rid of prejudice and discrimination. So when we're faced with that massive challenge that you're you're in a classroom where you normally think students are at this level, but you're having to go right, I have to. I'd have to teach them at the level that, uh, of a young child. It's quite a challenge and fingers crossed things will get even themselves out in the next couple of years. D during lockdown, have you, have you been running sessions online, sort of uh, online Zoom sessions? Yeah, I mean, like the rest of the education sector, we've been doing the best we can with the situation we were given. And I think there's lots of positives to come of it. I think that, that remote learning is, is, a, is a great tool in the armory now. The thing that always concerns me, I'm on a screen delivering to a class of 30 and either I'm going through the medium of a teacher which is has its positives and benefits or I'm doing a normal sort of webinar style thing where the students are either brave enough to engage with me via mics off or they talk via the chat. When we're in a normal classroom in normal times physically there the most important parts of our work is when we get the students doing group work and we can go around the classroom having a a, a conversation with those quiet members of, of the of the group, the ones who can who, who are too shy to, to, to speak up, the ones who aren't confident enough to, to offer their opinions, and we can talk through um, aspects of less they might be struggling with. With the lockdown stuff, that was removed. We we couldn't tell who was struggling because they were just being were they being quiet because they understood, or they would be quiet because they weren't engaging, were they be quiet because they didn't understand. Um, we didn't know, and that part was completely removed. And even now, as a business speaker with COVID. They're moving around the classroom has been taken out so even though we can see who's struggling it's very very hard to engage with them on that one-to-one -one, very quiet level without having to involve the rest of the class which can further 
make um, exacerbate things by having someone who's shy now being the centre of attention, and they just they clam up. So. This whole segment that you've just been talking about, you know, emotional intelligence and empathy, you know, it seems it seems self-evident now that you've spoke, spoken it out, but I just hadn't, this is one of the things I just hadn't thought, I just hadn't really thought about in terms of um, that kind of development uh, on a child and the impact of it long-term. Um, but yeah, really, really, uh, really disturbing, really powerful. And like you say, I really hope that things start to even out um, over the next next couple of years. I think one of the things that you touched on earlier on um, is the fact that, you know, some of this hate, it's not just coming from the extreme far right. We've got, a party of government prepared to fan the flames of culture wars really at every opportunity do, do you see this mainstreaming of hate and division having an impact on the everyday lives of, of school children far away from Westminster and what sort of impact does it have on the discourse within school grounds and on the atmosphere in the classroom potentially the atmosphere out in the playground as well I'm thinking particularly things like you know Boris Johnson referring to uh, Muslim women uh, when the book has uh, letterboxes, for example. Um, is, is that something that you see play out? Uh, I would certainly think that plays out in the classroom. Things that people are, uh, hear, hear in the mainstream press or are used just in general society, I think you are seeing that trickle down into, into the classroom. And I don't think a lot of students have the um, understanding, just because it's not part of the curriculum really, the understanding of, of what's of why some why one thing's okay to say and why something else is seen as uh, is prejudicial and discriminatory and then causes as effects on people's lives and that's the that's the main focus of our work is trying to get them to understand something that may be seen as just a bit of a an off comment and another one that's actually does cause problems in in the, in the real life and then can, can can lead to racism can lead to sexist ideas later in life the pyramid of hate that you I think exactly. you teach that don't you. I did, yeah. It's, our, our bulk of pedagogy comes from that one little graph. I remember that class that I taught. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're a good, uh, you're a good, you're a good student, Nick. Thanks very much. Rubbish teacher, <laughs> but uh, yeah. <laughs> Some of this sounds quite grim, but can you give us any examples of how you know changes in technology have helped challenge hate in different places, and you know how that might play out in the classroom yeah people do focus on doom and gloom you're completely right on that i think people forget that actually the bulk of the internet is very good otherwise we would not spend so much of our time on it you know it doesn't make sense if it was all full of hatred you'd get, you wouldn't go on twitter ever and ever in your life would you so i think actually when we talk about these students in these areas when we talk about ease of access although there's a negative side of that and we often talk about it about it from our perspective actually if you're a student in that area say and you're really really you say you're uh, you'd, you'd discover that you know you're, you're gay at 12 13 years old but you're in an area of the country where homophobia is normalized or it's not seen as uh, and you're, you're frightened of how to do it who to confide in the fact you've now got this whole world of people that are willing to support you and you can get access to that and you can get dif- you can hear different voices you can find out lgbt people are being successful and have that or even come from exactly the same scenario as you and you can learn from their story that's amazing isn't it and you are seeing students often at the end of a class this happens regularly, will come up to me and say, oh, Owen or Mr. Jones, um, have you heard about this or have you heard of that? I think you'd be finding this really interesting. And they are, especially with students from minority backgrounds, just really lovely hearing them share stories of stuff they've heard on the, of their stuff they've researched on the internet that's helped them through a particular rough patch in their life. And that for me is just, is lovely. That's amazing. Yeah, that's, that's really fantastic. So how, how do the kids, 
respond to the sessions that sessions that you run on the whole in in, in the schools i mean is it is it positively received yeah given that they are pretty down sessions you know we're talking about racism and and all sorts of horrible things but um yeah they are really well received and what's quite nice is we we generally focus on monocultural communities we're not like other charities other charities um use proxy data such deprivation indexes which isn't just just someone because someone's deprived doesn't make them a racist you know um so in fact, we go to these areas where we, we know some of the attitudes are prevalent or most likely to be prevalent. Having someone go in there and just having, first of all, a, a, a balanced argument or discussion on these things, that, that for a lot of students, that's, that's fascinating to have someone who's calmly talking about things rather than getting very animated on one side or the other. Uh, but also, it's lovely seeing the students from minority backgrounds, whether it be their gender, sexuality, religion, race, whatever, when they're in our lesson, finally feeling safe to come out and say, oh, this is me and this is my experience. And you, you especially see it with the, with the students who, where their, their minority isn't, say, visible. So we've had, I've had at least three or four students come out in my lesson as gay. And it's just, you can forget the, we, we, we spend so much on lesson plans and learning outcomes and all that stuff. When that happens, who cares about learning plans, right? That's an amazing thing to happen. So, um, we are not, we're not going to change the world in an hour. That's ridiculous to be there to suggest we can do that. But we can be a catalyst to change. That's all we try and be. If we can, we can plant those seeds and then have the teaching profession is amazing. We forget that you know, teachers are incredible. Most of us come out of, the, of school with very, very good educations, very rounded people. If we can just be that catalyst, a bit, a bit of specialist knowledge, a bit of specialist pedagogy for an hour and then let the teaching staff get on the rest of the year, then hopefully we can create real change in schools. What an incredible note to end on. Um, yeah, right. It's amazing. Oh, and what I would have done for you in my school all those all those moons ago. <laughs> I think we've got a lot to cover in future episodes. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts and want to support the work that we do, you know, in the education uh, department, then please consider supporting the Hope Education Fund and remember to tune in next time. We are kicking around ideas for 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 for, for the future episodes. We're thinking. Well, I was thinking, you know, talking about division during maths, for example, or... Nice. Quite, yeah, thanks very much. That was a nice one. <laughs> uh, I was very proud of that. And then there's, a, there's a potentially, a, we've got an idea to do with uh, history as well. But if you're listening and you really want to suggest an idea, please get in touch. We're going to be doing these every half term. So make sure you tune in then. Um, otherwise, see you soon. Take care. And uh, yeah, be safe. Bye-bye. Bye.